This is Popaganda, the feminist response to pop culture podcast. I'm Sarah Merck. This episode of Popaganda is brought to you by Celestial Pictures. Looking to freshen up your Hulu or Netflix queue? Add some kick-ass women from the Celestial Pictures Shaw Brothers catalog of kung fu films to your watch list. Come Drink With Me, Raw Courage, 14 Amazons are all great films featuring amazing female martial artists. Even more, leave a review on Celestial Pictures' Facebook page at facebook.com slash Shaw Brothers Universe, and you will earn a beautiful poster from a classic Shaw Brothers martial arts film. Again, that's facebook.com slash Shaw Brothers Universe. Close your eyes and imagine thousands of screaming teenage girls. Just imagine being in the middle of the crowd at an Ariana Grande concert or a Taylor Swift show, surrounded by thousands of people who are filled with the desire to see and hear something they love. If you've ever been a part of a crowd like that, you know the power of fandom. Of course, it's fun to be a fan, but fandom can also be a powerful force. Fans are what makes the music and film economies roll. Fans can revive TV shows from the dead. Fans set the cultural tone of what's important and what's cool. And being a fan can really shape your identity. Fandom isn't just about something you like, it's often about who you are and what you want to support. Fandom can bind together communities and make us feel less alone. And that can be complicated. There's this great moment on an episode of the animated show Bob's Burgers, which, by the way, is a great show. This one episode really speaks to fandom. The character Louise is usually a cynical kid, and she always has some scheme up her sleeve and definitely doesn't have time for sincere, silly stuff like crushes. But when her older sister Tina drags her along to a boy band concert, in the midst of thousands of screaming teenage girls, Louise suddenly realizes she's a fan. A fan, specifically, of an adorable singer named Boo Boo. Oh, really? That's interesting. Tell me more. What about Boo Boo? Boo Boo's the youngest, and he's got a really great voice, but he hasn't hit puberty yet, so that could change. What's he into? Sports? I could get into sports. What the hell else does he like? I want to give him things. Whoa, Louise, you like Boo Boo. What? No, Tina, that's okay! Right! Like, I like a boy! That's... Uh, you think he might like me? Oh my god, what's happened to me? Cut me off, but I'm Realizing that she has a crush on a boy and is a fan of a boy band, just like thousands of other girls, throws Louise into an identity crisis. How can she like this thing so much? What does that say about her? On today's show, we've got four stories of fandom that, like Louise's Brush with Boo Boo, speak to some of the deeper issues about identity and culture. We look at what it means to be a gamer, explore the origins of queer fan fiction, and talk with musician Lauren Mayberry of Churches. But first, let's start in an unusual place for fandom, the Supreme Court. Supreme Court justices are known for being reserved. They're somber. Sitting on the highest court in the land is very serious business. That's why it's so surprising that one of the most dedicated and humble Supreme Court justices has recently become the center of pop culture fan phenomena. That would be the one and only Ruth Bader Ginsburg, maybe better known as Notorious RBG. 
When asked to reflect on her career at age 82, RBG doesn't talk about her important legal work with any fireworks or pomp and circumstance. Instead, here's her talking to Bloomberg News. You've been working on issues of women's rights, gender equality for your whole career. As you look back, what have you accomplished over the course of your career? I haven't accomplished anything alone, but I was fortunate to be part of a, a, of a revived feminist movement starting in the late 60s. And I was a lawyer with a talent that could contribute to that, to that effort. And what was accomplished? It was a stunning, stunningly successful effort in this sense. She certainly doesn't aim to be the center of attention. But in recent years, RBG's opinions on cases involving reproductive rights, health care, and voting laws have led to legions of fans. There are Ruth Bader Ginsburg t-shirts, nail art, tattoos, and a plethora of Halloween costumes. She has inspired multiple people to pen tribute songs in her honor. Yeah. This song is dedicated to all the judges that told me I never amount to nothing because of my gender. To all the people that lived in their ivory towers that I was hustling in front of, that tried to buy me off by putting Susan B. Anthony on the dollar, and all the women in the struggle. Know what I'm saying? It was all a dream back when I argued Reed v. Reed. That one is called R.B. Juicy, a tribute to Ruth Bader Ginsburg in the style of Notorious B.I.G.'s Juicy. A musician named Jonathan Mann even turned the exact text of her dissent in the 2014 Hobby Lobby case into an acoustic cover song. Religious organizations exist to foster the interests of persons subscribing to the same religious faith. Not so for-profit corporations, workers who sustain these operations are not drawn one religious community. No On a recent episode of Comedy Central show Broad City, best friends Abby and Alana get into the RBG fandom fever with Abby dressing up as a Supreme Court justice for Halloween. Watch out, world, because I'm about to make a law passing that's important for humanity and women. That is so baller. Moomoo's Since when does a Supreme Court justice so get her own sketch on Comedy Central? Well, the Tumblr Notorious RBG certainly has something to do with it. Law student Shauna Konizhnik started the Notorious RBG Tumblr in June of 2013. That month, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had written a number of compelling decisions, including a victory for same-sex marriage and a scathing dissent to the court's ruling that key parts of the Voting Rights Act are unconstitutional. The notorious RBG Tumblr collects and creates Ruth Bader Ginsburg memes, cementing the iconic internet image of RBG in her black robes, her white jabot, that's the lacy thing around her neck, and a gold crown on top of her head. This fall, Notorious RBG is now a book, a biography of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, co-written by Shauna and MSNBC political reporter Erin Carmon. I called up Erin to talk about the RBG fandom. And so when did you become a fan of RBG. Do you remember when you first, when she was first on your radar? Uh, the first Ruth Bader Ginsburg meme that I ever saw and the point at which I was like, oh, duh, of course, was on November 2012. It was election day and it was her uh, National Gallery portrait and it said next to it, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg did not 
survived cancer twice without missing a day on the bench so that you could stay home and watch Law & Order instead of voting. The Ruth Bader Ginsburg memes resonate because behind the cute image of a Supreme Court justice wearing a crown or made into a sparkling rainbow gif is real serious work. RBG has been a dedicated lawyer for 50 years. She's had a hand in pushing for gender equality since back in the 1960s and 70s, and she keeps on trucking today. That's not just funny, that's really powerful. Or as Irene puts it, As a young, fellow Jewish, fellow opera fan, uh, feminist, interested in the law and interested in reproductive rights, I, mean, I, I think it's just really inspiring that somebody could have that body of work and stay so passionately committed to the cause of equality and still be on the highest court in the land. RBG has been working on important issues for decades, but it's her well-written dissents and high-profile cases in recent years that have made thousands of people identify with her and become genuine fans. And all the energy around RBG as an icon will hopefully make people pay attention to the legal realities she's working with. Our hope is that it draws people into the work that she's committed her life to. You know, part of it is fun, and I think all social movements need fun. You know, even people who are passionately committed to social change like to kick back every once in a while. And I think our generation of younger women doesn't see a need to choose between being fun and substantive. Uh, that said, you know, we, we've engaged substantively in our book in the cases partly um, because these issues are very much unfinished. And so if people uh, pay attention to all the issues that are at stake, whether it's through their uh, political process or through the court, we would consider that a massive win. Many of the the battles that she fought in the 70s are not yet done. So, you know, if making Ruth Bader Ginsburg cool draws us more deeply uh, and more profoundly into those battles, I think that would be a really good thing. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is certainly aware of the newfound fandom around her. The notorious RBG book is now for sale in the Supreme Court gift shop. And the justice herself says she has bought several Notorious RBG t-shirts. She had to ask her clerks who the Notorious B.I.G. was. And now she happily notes that they're both from Brooklyn. That's really funny. Um, uh, You know, it's interesting because throughout the 80s, she was told that her feminism was outdated and irrelevant because it focused on equality rather than men and women being different. So I personally think that there's a kind of justice to the fact that young feminists see a lot of the relevance in her feminism now. I have to think that that feels good after being told, you know, we don't need you anymore. And it's it's not so uh, frequent to see women who are older and women who are over 80 who are still, you know, in their prime work, uh, who are being celebrated as heroes as opposed to being invisible or shunted off to the side. Erin points out that the biggest reason why RBG has been able to gain so many fans is because of the grassroots nature of the Internet. In a different era, the millions of people who think her legal opinions are spot on might never see her celebrated joyously in the news. And she's not seeking our attention. And I think people appreciate that they themselves can choose their own heroes now that there are fewer gatekeepers telling us, you know, this is who you're supposed to idolize. These are people who are spontaneously choosing to celebrate her, and the media is following along. Any decision to use contraceptives is not propelled by the government. It's the woman's autonomous choice informed by her doctor. Approving some religious claims while deeming others unworthy could be perceived as favoring one religion over another.
When you hear the words video game fan, who comes to mind? You might think of somebody who looks like the Simpsons comic book store guy. Ooh, loneliness and cheeseburgers are a dangerous mix. When I Google image search gamer or video game fan, the photos of people on the first page of the results are all guys. With the exception of a couple photos of sexy female models wearing costumes that look like Nintendo Game Boys. Also, can we talk about how it's called a Game Boy? I never thought about being a girl who liked playing Tetris on a Game Boy when I was a kid, but now as an adult, the idea of women and girls not being the typical video game fan is frustrating. People who don't play games sometimes think that video games are a nerdy niche industry. I hate to break it to you, but about 156 million Americans play video games, about half of whom are women. It's a $21 billion industry. In 2013, the video game industry made twice as much as the film industry. So it's a huge part of our media and our pop culture. And while there are millions and millions of fans, the identity politics of who considers themselves a video game fan are complicated. Journalist and gamer Latoya Peterson has pointed together a new documentary series for the website Fusion about gender in gaming. Gamer has become a loaded term. I never had a problem with the word. It was what I grew up hearing. For me, gamer was a word with power. It was an affiliation. It was a way to tell others that I too loved games. But just like with any other label, the term gamer is weighed down with baggage. I called up LaToya to talk about her experience as a video game fan and how gaming fandom has evolved. Hi, I'm LaToya Peterson. I am the editor and owner of Rachelicious.com and the editor-at-large at at Fusion, where I have been producing a series about girls who game, called Girl Gamers. Awesome. And you're a video game fan yourself. Can you talk to me about... Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, can you talk to me about when you uh, started playing video games and when you started identifying as a fan? Yeah, so uh, I started playing video games in 1989. I remember the exact moment. It was because my father had bought a Super Nintendo, or sorry, it was a regular Nintendo Entertainment System. He had bought the first one that had the Duck Hunt Super Mario Combo Pack and the Gold Cartridge Legend of Zelda. And I was forbidden from touching it. He was like, do not go into the room, do not come and try this thing. But my dad was at work until like, I think like five or six. And so when I would come home from school, I would totally just sneak into this room um, and play and just be like really just you know losing myself in this world and my younger sister who at the time was just born so she was born in 89 so she must have been like four months or five months uh she cried terribly except for when I was playing Mario Brothers or Zelda she didn't like Duck Hunt but Mario Brothers or Zelda and so like she was totally like my accomplice in it um and so years and years later it's great I did I wasn't surprised when she got into animation and design she doesn't do that now it's her job but she ended up getting into animation and design and like having all these weird random video game things that I like to say I contributed to early because that's what she grew up watching. So that's how it started. Um, and then it just continued. It just never really stopped. Um, I always felt like there was going to be a time when I would get out of it and it just hasn't happened. Did your dad ever find out that you were illicitly playing his video games? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I got in total trouble for that the first time. Um, but it kind of just kept happening. And at some point my dad gave up on trying to guard the console because at some point, like my cousins would come over. Then there were like eight of us trying to like bang around on his stuff. So at some point he just gave it up and he would just buy a ton of games for us. Like, I think he picked them at random, honestly. Like we got the most random stuff 
Um, there's a reason why a lot of times when I talk about my first gaming memories, it's always like Doom and Abe's Odyssey and Sonic and Crash Bandicoot. It's like literally my dad would just grab stuff and stick it in the basement and be like, go play, leave me alone. And then he had his like treasured games for his friends that stayed in the room. And those were the ones that we couldn't touch from there. So, you know, he eventually, I think, learned to work around it. You're producing this series for Fusion about uh, girl gamers and the first episode digs into the word gamer. Um, let's just listen to a clip from it right now. I identify as a gamer and to me the term gamer just means someone who plays games. That's it. I don't identify as a gamer. I think of myself as someone who plays games but I don't think of myself as like a reader or um, a watcher of movies and so I don't think of myself as a gamer either. I do, yeah. But I also identify as an artist and a lot of other things. So, you know, we're complex individuals. This little experiment was fascinating. So can you talk to me about when you first realized that there were some social and political politics around who identifies as a gamer? Yeah, uh, it took me forever because I'm an old gamer, right? Like, <laughs> I'm not like Atari old or arcades old or pinball only old, but I'm still fairly old, right? I still remember when like multiplayer meant couch play. It meant that you and your friends came over and you had four controllers, right? Or, you know, it meant a LAN party. Like, it meant that specific thing. The internet uh, was slow <laughs> in our day. And so, you know, it was very dedicated people who were playing, like, the online PC games. Um, and so it's, uh, it took me a long time to realize that gamer was a complicated word. Um, I had never heard anybody against the term. I had never heard anybody angry about the term, there was a lot of the uh, kind of, oh, are you really a gamer type policing uh, that tends to happen. But, you know, that's anytime you play with new guys, they're like, oh, are you really a gamer? Are you sure you're a gamer? And then, <laughs> yeah, actually. Um, so I never really felt any kind of complication with the term. I've always identified as a gamer. That's how I found other gamers. It was cool. And it wasn't until, honestly, I started doing the documentary. Um, because I was thinking about the question that I ask everyone more in terms of the, oh, you know, do you feel like you're a gamer? Do you feel like, you know, there's a different word or a better word uh, to judge you? Or do you feel like men challenge you as being a gamer? I didn't realize the term gamer itself was going to be a problem. And the fact that people didn't identify with it and they didn't relate to it in the same way uh, was really eye opening for me. And so that's why I started literally asking everybody because I, the first two people I asked were like, hell no, I'm not a gamer. And then I was like, man, am I out of, like, what happened? Did I miss something? Uh, and it turns out it ended up being almost half and half, like consensus wise of, yes, I'm a gamer. No, I'm not a gamer. And these are all people who play video games. And most of them make them too. So I'm like, like we're talking about like elite levels where people know how to do this and they're, and they're still like, no, I'm not a gamer. And it's weird because like before, like I used to write for this all girls gaming mag called Cerise. That was run by Andrea Rubenstein and Robin Fleming. This is back in like 07, eh. <laughs> like 90 million years ago in internet time. Um, and it was interesting because Robin identifies a gamer, but she had a column called Robin Can't Jump. And it was all about like her not being able to complete video games, even though she really loved them. Um, and that's also a really common experience that I feel like a lot of people don't talk about, which is kind of like you love games and you like the experience of them, but maybe you're just not very good at them. Um, and so I could see why, like, people like Liz and whatever said, they always associated it with hyper-competitiveness um, in gaming. Like, that's definitely a part of it. Uh, but it doesn't have to be, I think. So do you have a good community of video game fans around you and yourself? Or 
are you not really part of the community because it can be gross sometimes? Uh, well, like I said, I'm an old school player. And so most of the people I met who gamed, I met in real life and I met in person and they became my friends. And then some of them I met through the blogosphere um, and they became my friends. But it was very little of like finding people randomly. Like true story, the girl cram and guru that I still kind of hang out with. Um, I mean, like time at this point, it's been a decade. And so like literally one person just moved across the country and then two of the girls kind of aren't friends anymore. You know, it's dynamics like every other friend group. Um, but I literally met uh, one of my closest friends on Friendster because I typed in my zip code and video games. And I wanted I just wanted to find other girls. Because at that point, I think I was playing with almost exclusively guys. And that's cool sometimes, uh, but not cool other times. And some of the times it was not cool was like there was one guy's house in particular that I used to call a porn pit. And like we would go down into his basement. It smelled really weird. And there was like all these copies of like Blacktail and Smooth. Like I read everything that Melissa Ford has ever written because of that. So how do you feel like being a video game fan has changed over the years? Like for you personally, does your fandom feel the same now as it did when you were still a kid sort of sneaking into your dad's room or does it feel totally different? It feels similar, right? There's still that weird giddy excitement when there's a new game that you're looking forward to playing. There's still that awesome feeling of accomplishment, but it's just different. You know, like our lives are different. I think one of the things that um, I love about my friend Jamin Warren's mag, Kill Scream, is that they started trying to rat, like tackle this idea of like what does it mean to be an adult gamer and how like you know your life has dramatically changed. I'm not 16 anymore. I don't have 50 hours a week to put on games. Like I don't. That's not happening anymore. Right? I'm a mom, I got a job and I got a blog. Like I don't have time. Um and so the relationships are with the games are, is just very, very different. Um but still deep and I really enjoy it. Um, I'm saddened by some of the stuff that I see, but it's more like industry stuff, right? Like, you know, moving away from local multiplayer to have online. And some of my friends like violently disagree with me about this too, just FYI, like not everybody has the same view. Um, I like the camaraderie of like sitting on a couch with people, trash talking next to them, like being in that same space. Um, I don't feel the same way online. And I don't like how like so many more things are pushing. So like now everybody has, both people have to own the game. Both people have to own the consoles. Both people have to. Like, a lot of the gaming that I grew up with was about sharing. You know, like, you made a lot of friends that I think you wouldn't have normally made if it wasn't for, like, this one shared kind of weird hobby that you used to have. Uh, so that part of games culture is kind of going downhill a little bit. Um, and there aren't shared spaces anymore, like arcades. And arcades aren't as plentiful as they used to be. That's so interesting, though. That's such a good point that gaming has gone from being something that's really shared. And I think a lot of people who grew up playing video games feel that, too. I grew up playing with my brother and it being like an interactive experience between us, accomplishing something together in this video game. Versus now, it can be much more of a solo project where you're alone, you're in uh, maybe a, a video games are so much more complicated and have such big, expansive worlds that are fun to explore on your own. And you're right that there's just less of that shared space people coming over to play video games yeah yeah it's just it's not <clears throat> culturally significant anymore in an interesting way i don't know what that's going to do to the next gen. I, mean, I mean at the same time like the benefit of the internet is literally you can play with anybody anywhere and a lot of people do you know make those bonds the girl that i talked about who just moved like she moved because she met her new boyfriend in a game that they were playing it's an rpg and he, <laughs> so she's moved across country to go be with this guy now um, like, which is yeah it happens um, but it's, it's, uh, so it is, it does facilitate these like wonderful connections and interesting things. It's just that, I don't know. Like, I think it depends on what kind of culture 
you want. And I feel like particularly like this more anonymized online culture, it gives rise to like what a lot of people associate with gaming, which is like, you know, this ridiculous levels of harassment. Um, and it's weird because I feel like for this generation growing up, they haven't seen a world where that didn't exist. And so it's strange, right? Like it, it's just really, really strange for me to know So I'm 32 and my conception and my perception of video games is going to be totally different than someone who is, you know, like 20 and under just because of those shifts in like the internet, anonymous commenting, group play online. Like I was playing Journey with my son and I didn't realize that if you were connected to the PS4 network, other players from Journey will come in and play with you. Like you don't interact with them, you don't talk to them, like they kind of just roll around. And it's cute and it's very fun. I like that part of it. Um, but it, that could have easily not worked out <laughs> as, as beautifully with other players kind of coming into your game randomly and just being like, hey, I'm just going to hang out. Um, and so it's, it's an interesting thing for me to think about because it's, it's easy for me to think about games as this welcoming and loving space because that was for the most part, what I experienced. And I'm not sure younger people will have that same experience. Well, before we go, I know you have to run. Uh, what are you a big fan of right now? Oh, my God. What am I doing right now? Um, <laughs> so in terms of on the indie games, okay, I'll talk. So I'm a console player. Um, that's been my big thing. I'm a console player. And so the stuff I've been playing on the console, I've been replaying Final Fantasy X and Final Fantasy X 2 just because it's literally been a decade since I played it last. I was in a completely different relationship, totally different time in my life. And so it's interesting to go back and be back in Spira, but at the same time kind of be in a very different life space. So I've been playing through that, and I'll probably end up replaying to Shadow Hearts Covenant, which was one of my favorite games, and I'm starting to forget why it was my favorite. So I'm like, okay, time to replay that. Um, newer stuff, I'm playing Journey, and I'm probably going to cop Mirror's Edge um, when it comes back out because I'm super looking forward to it. I just read an interview with one of the level designers, and I was like, yes. Um, in terms of indie games... I have been kind of totally addicted to Jane Friedhoff's game, who's in <clears throat> the documentary series. Jane's game is called Slam City Oracles, and it's a game that's, a, that's kind of based in Riot Girl. And it's like if you want to just kind of slam together and break stuff up, and it's multiplayer, and it's local multiplayer, so you can play with people um, in your area and, and around you. Um, and, you know, it's this awesome Riot Girl soundtrack and these gorgeous colors. It kind of looks like uh, Katamari, and you just kind of bang into things as these little blocks and you keep you know banging and if you slam into your friend you both end up going higher and you both end up being able to break bigger stuff it's just a it's just a ridiculous amount of fun with an amazing soundtrack and i've been enjoying that a lot too That was journalist and gamer Latoya Peterson. You can see that gender and gaming video series at fusion.net. This episode of Propaganda is brought to you by Celestial Pictures. Looking to freshen up your Hulu or Netflix queue? Add some kick-ass women from the Celestial Pictures Shaw Brothers catalog of kung fu films to your watch list. Come Drink With Me, Raw Courage, 14 Amazons are all great films featuring amazing female martial artists. Even more, leave a review on Celestial Pictures' Facebook page at facebook.com slash Shaw Brothers Universe, and you will earn a beautiful poster from a classic Shaw Brothers martial arts film. 
Again, that's facebook.com slash Shaw Brothers Universe. You're listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Today, we're focusing on fandom. One of the coolest things about fans is how they reinterpret the thing that they love. Musicians will write covers of their favorite songs, and visual artists will make work inspired by famous drawings and paintings and sculptures. And writers, well, we often like to write new stories based on our favorite films and books and TV shows. The world of fan fiction is rich and diverse. In a lot of fan fiction, writers pen new romantic storylines for their beloved characters. And that includes a lot of queer storylines. Fanfiction writers often play off a queer subtext in the original story, like think Sherlock and Watson, or envision an entirely new romantic storyline that's not in the original work at all, like, say, mm, Hagrid and Dumbledore. These days, there are thousands and thousands of queer fanfiction stories. The fan-led remixing genre has flourished online. But how did queer fanfiction get its start? Journalist Noi Thrupkew looked into the origins of queer fanfiction for a 2003 article in Bitch Magazine. We've adapted her article, and I'm excited to share it here. Serena Fong reads the piece called Fantastic Voyage. The kiss was not at all like Kirk had expected. Spock, wait, wait, he whispered desperately. I can't, we can't. You, God, Spock, I want you. Don't you understand? I want you so much. Kirk still couldn't believe that the Vulcan knew what he was getting himself into. Don't worry, Star Trek fans. You didn't miss an episode. That's an excerpt from Christmas Gifts or Blue Seduction, a piece of queer Star Trek fan fiction. If you haven't been poring over fanzines or trolling the web recently, you might not have come across the juicy encounters, gender play, and fiercely feminist theorizing found in the world of fanfiction. The subgenre of fanwritten stories that's particularly about pairing up same-sex characters is called slash fanfiction, as in the punctuation mark between the names of its lover heroes like Kirk slash Spock. Slash fanfiction was born at the end of the 1960s, when inventive Star Trek fans started penning steamy rendezvous between Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock in photocopied fanzines. But it wasn't until the 1990s that slash fiction truly flourished. With the advent of the internet and its discussion groups, a growing subculture of fanfiction writers and readers could share and critique each other's work. As the number of stories increased, so too did the range of potential pairings. Intrepid slash writers primarily women writing for other women, gleefully found the love that dare not speak its name between just about everyone. There are slash stories written about everyone you can think of. Starsky and Hutch, Luke Skywalker and Han Solo, Harry Potter and Draco Malfoy. Harry Potter authors hasten to assure readers that their stories feature the characters in their late teens. Slash does attend to female-female pairings too, but the vast majority of it focuses on men. The relationship dynamics in Slash have become just as varied as the couples. Initially steeped in first-time male love between two comrades-in-arms, Slash has developed into a free-for-all. Slash also attracts critical attention from social theorists, many of whom ponder one of the more interesting questions about the genre. Why do Slash writers, who are mostly straight women writing for an audience of other straight women, create fiction that focuses on gay male romance? 
Although theories abound, Slash has become so diverse that it easily thwarts anyone trying to find one generalizing principle. Like all fan fiction, Slash turns pop culture consumers into creators. It thrives on a sort of dialogue between fan and character. But it goes one step further than most fanfic by openly interrogating static pop culture notions of masculine and feminine. Slash stories often experiment with, discard, and reinvent ideas about gender. Writing male characters as lovers allows a richer sense of possibility than duplicating the well-worn boy-girl romances coughed up by most TV shows. Early slash fiction relied on a familiar pattern. Two men served together for a greater purpose, like exploring the galaxy. The hazards of the job bring them closer. As macho discourse would have it, those who spill blood together become bound by it. With danger comes conflict, fevered words that can barely mask the slowly creeping awareness. Stammered confessions, blissful reciprocation, ecstatic consummation, a delicious formula. Much of early Slash follows this first-time love scheme in which two men who have always identified as straight fall in love with each other. Why would Slash writers dwell on such a theme? A lot of the good first-time pieces read like rapturous coming-of-age stories, with equal parts lust and self-discovery. A first time, too, perhaps, for many of the writers who, being women, have likely never had boy and boy sex. Their heroes are just discovering their manly love, and the writers are learning right along with them. For many writers, Slash is also a venue for sexual exploration and experimentation. And what better way to chart new territory than to use two unfamiliar bodies in search of love? Slash doesn't limit itself to vanilla man love, however. Many pieces explore interesting power dynamics. The first Slash piece I ever read was a multi-part account of a very unusual X-Files relationship, the enslavement of FBI agent Mulder by his boss, assistant director Skinner. I just had a bad dream. Let me get some clothes on. Graphics accompanying the story showed Skinner's bald head superimposed on a leather daddy's body with a groveling Mulder clutching his boots. Other Slash is infused with the hurt and comfort element. One character suffers some unspeakable pain or torture, and the other offers nurturing solace. One subset of Slash is the off-scorned Mary Sue story, where the writer inserts a new player, often a thinly-veiled version of herself, into a dalliance with a favorite character. Mary Sue fiction tends to feature simpering female characters flirting with a manly object of desire, missing many of the tantalizing possibilities of Slash. Instead of re-envisioning TV stories, Mary Sue Slash too often seems to settle for instant libido gratification for only one person, the writer. Slash authors are a very self-aware, self-analyzing community. Add this to a lively academic debate on fiction, and you have a rich melange of debate that makes the idea of a grand, unified theory of Slash fan fiction seem laughable. Slash is gay. Slash isn't gay. Slash is neither, or a little bit of both. Slash lets women assert power over men the way the patriarchy asserts power over women. Slash lets women humanize and redraft masculinity. Slash is about nookie. Slash isn't about sex at all. Slash allows women to explore collaborative ways of writing that subvert copyright. Scholar Constance Penley takes a feminist approach to Slash analysis. Penley argues that female slash authors focus on male-male relationships because they're the most egalitarian. 
Basing her theories on Kirk, Spock, slash fiction, Penley critiques the flat characterization of female TV characters and the limitations of what TV and media culture depict as male-female relationships. But in real life, she also argues, women's bodies are too often layered with negative meanings and therefore become the site for political, social, and moral struggle. Stories pairing Kirk and Spock are a rejection of those problematic bodies and of TV's flat female characters. Instead, writers serve up a subversive rewriting of the script. Lovers can share romance and work and still be equal. But the more Slash I read, the more convinced I became that no one analysis could explain the varieties of Slash, the bent of all Slash writers, the political leanings, or the story rewriting that happens on a daily basis on the internet. What erotic fanfiction means? depends on who you ask. For all its whimsy and strangeness, science fiction mirrors our own reality. And Slash seems to reflect that combination. Many Slash writers are compelled to redraft male characters so they are a bit more communicative and tender, qualities stereotypically associated with women. But there are pitfalls if one goes too far. Some Slash stories have lantern-jawed guys coming home with flowers every day, tying on pink aprons, weeping over lost football games. These stereotypes, feminine or no, are boring, despite the genders involved. Sometimes Slash writers go in the other direction, writing reams about stoic, uncommunicative, hot men having sex. And while that can be fun for a while, the stories that have received the most acclaim in the world of erotic fanfiction are ones that show why these men are with each other and what's behind the sex. In other words, the best stories feature characters who are more like real people than the characters you find on TV. With a relationship that airs in real TV time, there's just enough negative space for a writer's imagination to fill in. The tension between two characters who aren't already in a relationship is much more promising, however. Star Trek Voyager's Seven of Nine and Captain Janeway, for example have proved quite enticing to many Slash writers. Slash writers, along with authors of other fanfiction, have changed TV and movie watching from a passive act into one that is participatory, allowing the deciphering and creation of meaning. That a Slash writer can grapple with gender and power issues adds extra richness to the already subversive practice of writing fanfic. Luckily, there's no shortage of material. Television leaves a lot to be desired which means more room for slash writers to fill with their imaginations. Even if TV changes dramatically for the better, with more programs that highlight deep, complex characters and show a broader range of social issues, loves, and sexual orientations, I'm sure that slash writers will always find their space. That article by Noi Threpkew was read by Serena Fong. Noi went on from writing about queer fan fiction for Bitch to become an astoundingly impressive independent journalist who writes frequently about international politics, culture, and human trafficking. She most recently served as a spring 2015 Ferris professor at Princeton University, where she taught a seminar on international news. Clearly, I'm a fan. You're listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Today, we're exploring fandom. We've talked about fandom among fans, 
But what is it like to be the center of all that attention? Scottish electro-pop band Churches blew up after the release of their first album in 2013. Singer Lauren Mayberry fronts the trio, her gorgeous voice cutting through the band's punchy electric harmonies. The band has toured pretty much constantly over the past two years, keeping up an exhausting schedule of usually sold-out shows across the world. Along the way, Lauren has had to learn what it's like to be at the front of a super popular band. Most fans are awesome. Her intimate lyrics resonate with many people in a unique way. But Lauren's also spoken openly about the constant online harassment she faces from some male listeners. When the band had a very rare day off in Portland, Lauren and I met up to talk about her history as a fan. It turns out she was really into emo as a teen. We also talked about how she tries to be sincere with all the fans of churches, including having to call out the occasional dude. When we talked in her hotel room, she'd just gotten off the phone with her mom. Yeah, can, can, can you tell me about um, sort of what your parents think of your music and what, what they think of your stage show? Yeah, my parents, I'm really lucky and my parents have been really supportive of all this stuff um, since I was a teenager and they would like drive, drive me to gigs with my drum kit and stuff and uh, they've definitely put in the hours of coming to not that awesome gigs in quite scary venues in Scotland. So um, yeah, I think they, they're very happy with where we are now and uh, I guess it's the most... Uh, I suppose it's the most accessible music I've ever made, so they can actually enjoy it sonically, which is nice. And um, yeah, my parents came out to the New York show we did um, at the start of this tour, and I like to believe they would be quite proud of it, I like, but they're also still definitely parents. They're never going to let you get ideas above your station, I think that's a good thing. But yeah, I guess we don't get to see them that much, so I think it's the first time I've spoken to my mum on the phone on this tour. But, you know, try and keep in touch. Smartphones great invention for touring bands. Yeah, so what? in what ways do you think your parents won't, won't let you get above your station? Are they like, that was fine, but, you know, so-and-so's better? Well, um, my mom keeps tabs on stuff online, which I find deeply worrying in many ways, but she's always like, I saw this thing that this person said, and I disagree because of this. And I'm like, thanks, Mom. But, um, yeah, I think also sometimes she does the, are you really, are you going to wear that <laughs> thing? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, why? What's wrong with it? She's like, nothing but I think in her head she's like why are you dressed so scruffily what are you doing but um yeah I think that's good I don't like the idea that you become obsessed with like the idea of yourself you know what I mean because a lot of the time when people talk about us or write about us it's kind of abstract you know so I think it's nice to focus on the actual real real world and have that separation between band persona and real person. Uh, and so your your mom kind of helps keep you honest and say, I know who you actually are. You might be cool to like <laughs> millions of people in the world, but like maybe you're not that cool to me. Well, yeah, it was nice when I was speaking to her on the phone just there. She was, we were catching up on some things and she was talking about her opinions on uh, just some stuff that people had written about us or said about us. And she was like, I disagree because of this reason. And then it was very nice. She was like, and if you ever want to just like phone me and talk about it, you could do that. And oh, like, that's so sweet. Thanks, mom. But then also I was like, don't read that because it can't be nice for a parent to read that. I'm like, don't look at it, look away. But she's a tough cookie, so. Has your mom kept up on um, you writing about misogyny and writing about the sort of terrible comments you've gotten online? Yeah, I think they've, they've been really supportive of that. And I guess also for a parent that can't be nice to find out about it, that can't be pleasant. And, uh, you know, they raised me to be, I hope, a reasonably thoughtful and 
person with empathy for people. So I guess it is weird for them to think, why would somebody say that to my child? But uh, no, they're very supportive of it. And uh, I think, I like, I kind of know. I feel like my mum has been a lot more engaged with that, those kind of issues in the last few years as well. So it's nice for us to have those things to talk about and kind of, you know, look at it through a different lens, generationally speaking. That's really sweet that she says, if you ever want to talk about it, just give me a call. I can, I can listen to you. Well, and it's nice, because I guess when we were talking about it, she's like, and I see things, and then I want to reply, but I know I can't, because you'd be upset with me. And I'm like, yes, don't reply. Don't don't talk to them. Don't engage. Look away. But um, no, I think it's nice. And I guess we're very lucky to have that. that. Has your mom ever jumped in to defend you online? Not that I'm aware of, unless she's got, like, troll accounts. I think my mom could be, like, the ultimate troll in the true sense of the word troll. You know, when people are just, like taking a rise out of people or noising you up for humorous purposes. To me, that's what troll means. So when people say trolls to us, I'm like, they're not trolls. Those aren't trolls. That's not funny. To be a troll, you need to be funny. Um, but yeah, maybe she's got like parody accounts somewhere and she can do that. But uh, no, we have quite a strict don't reply to the mum policy. So When I started writing online, my parents would definitely leave comments. Uh, <laughs> and uh, under completely obvious names. I remember <laughs> when, I, when I first started publishing work online, my dad commented and his um, his super secret name that he made up was El Dado. <laughs> and I was like, don't do that. Don't be El Dado. But he wanted, yeah, I can understand the urge where you're like, you just want, don't want to just leave your child out there. You've been protecting them their whole life. You don't want to just leave them there in front of the bus. But um, yeah, I guess it's helpful to have the moral support more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you guys tour more than anybody else I know in the entire world. You're on tour all the time. I believe right now you're on tour for 18 straight months. Is is that correct? Pretty much, I think. I guess we'll take a lot of time off for Christmas, and uh, there'll be like a few day break between tours. But um, I don't think I'm not I'm not going to be back in the UK until just before Christmas. I don't think so. Busy times. And is that your decision to tour so much? And like. It, is that important to you? I guess it's always just been the kind of way we wanted to run the band, I suppose. Um, I think when we started, it was very much a thing that existed online, and that was great, and that's how we gathered a lot of the fan base, but I think it was important for us to take that out of the abstract and put it into people's real lives. I guess the shows are never the same because the front row is always different, and there's always a different kind of feedback going on. And I think, to me, that's a, like as cheesy as it sounds, that's a really helpful reminder of why you're doing what you're doing you know like we make music because we want to be creative and make something that means something to us but ultimately we always wanted that to communicate with other people and I've been in a lot of bands where that hasn't been the case so then when you see people responding and bringing those songs and that music into their lives I think that for me is the best feedback you can get and there's a lot of bullshit that flies around in the industry that we're in but I think it's nice to you know at the end of the day focus on that and see see how the music is connecting with people. I think that's the best thing. What What are you thinking about while you're on stage? Are you thinking about that connection like of the people in the audience or are you trying to keep your head straight on what you're doing? Or like what's going through your head when you're, when you're performing so much? I think for me it's changed a lot in the last couple of years. Um, I used to get very bad gig anxiety, which was quite weird because I never had it in other bands. But I think this is the first band I've been in where I wasn't playing other instruments and I suppose 
as much as we didn't do anything we didn't feel ready for it did change a lot like we were playing small clubs and then it was just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger all the time and um, I don't think at that time I'd found a way to deal well with people talking about us and telling us what you know just everyone's got an opinion and it's just like all this white noise coming at you and I don't think at the time I was dealing that well with that so I think there was a lot of gigs where I was just focusing on like counting bars and you know trying not to like you know, be like, okay, everything's going a little purple, I should breathe more, I should breathe more. And I think it's just been helpful to allow ourselves to grow at our own pace. And now I think when we're playing the shows, it's a lot more comfortable. And weirdly, that is now one of the more comfortable parts of being in the band. And we had six months off at home to make the record. And I tried to kind of use that time just to feel like I was getting more on top of my own shit, you know? Because I feel like I spent a lot of the time in the first record feeling like I was catching up with myself all the time. What's, what's that mean? Just like if everything is constantly changing and we're like it's becoming bigger and bigger and bigger and I'm like this isn't well I don't I'm not a professional musician I don't know what I'm doing and just like having the world's biggest imposter complex and I think it was helpful to have that time off to step back and look at what we had done which is really great but then also think about like this is my job this is my life now but how do I want to do that you know I feel like if I had if I had a dollar for every time somebody was like, she should do this, she shouldn't do that. Like, it's just it's just a big mess of opinions and nobody really knows what your band is or what you're trying to do other than you. So as much as, I don't know, I think I'm a bit more zen about it now. I'm like, people are entitled to their opinions and that's fine. Like, creativity is designed to make people think or feel something, but um, we don't have to change the way we operate in order to accommodate those things, you know? People always want to stereotype you in one way or another. So some people want me to be a pole-faced, aggressive, angry woman. And then other people are like, oh, well, she just fronts a pop band, so she can't have anything useful to say. She must be an idiot. And I'm like, well, neither of these things are correct. But, yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you hear from fans a lot who say, like, this song got me through a hard time or this song means this to me? Yeah, I guess we speak to people after shows or at signings and stuff, and I just started using this, uh, like, mailbox that we leave on the merch stand which I kind of kind of ripped the idea off the amazing Tegan Azera and basically people just put in letters or they can put in stamped address envelopes and we could try and write back to them and stuff like that and yeah like a lot of the time it's just people talking about when they first saw the band and what it means to them and you know sometimes some of the stuff is really fucking sad and it's like really upsetting that terrible things happen to these people but then they found something in the music that made them feel better for a time and I think that's a really wonderful thing. And to me, that's more valuable feedback is sitting reading that stuff than sitting online and reading, you know, reams and reams of, like, criticism about it, you know? I guess I was like, that. that's actually reality, is sitting face-to-face with that stuff. And maybe I'm just a big emo in disguise still, I don't know. But I think it's, it's important to be aware of that stuff. That's really sweet. I, it feels kind of old school, like people writing you actual physical letters on pieces of paper. It's pretty, I guess, because we've been so active on our social networks with the fan community and we've got a really great, solid base there. But also I think it's nice to, you know, we live in an online world where everything's on screens and everything's in the internet. And I think, to me, I quite like the the idea of, like, an old school letter going to somebody in the post. And I guess I was a teenager that was in street teams and on band message boards and I was in the Blood Pact, the Alkaline Trio fan club, and they sent you like a patch and a letter when you joined and I remember being so fucking excited when it came in the post. And to me, I think that's, that's yeah, I like that. What what kind of shows would you go to as a teenager? Would you go to clubs a lot? 
Um, well, I guess I lived in the kind of rural wilderness, so um, there was a, you would get a bus and a train to Glasgow, and then you would go to a show there. And um, I guess I was pretty into stuff like Jimmy Eat World and Get Cab and Brand New Bright Eyes, stuff like that. You so are an emo kid at heart. I am an emotional, <laughs> I've got an emo core. But I don't know, like, I don't really subscribe to that notion that people can be snooty about emo. I remember as a teenager going to shows every once in a while. I also lived in a small town, so there weren't many shows. Not a lot going but, on. <laughs> not a lot going on. Um, but just being in a crowd of people at a, at a music show is such a unique and powerful experience. And I always have trouble articulating what that feeling is. Like, why does that feel so important? And why is that something so many people want? You know? I think it's funny when you've especially when I was a teenager, I was like, you sit and you listen to those records by yourself and you think about how much they mean to you and why, and that's your totally personal experience. And then you go into a place where you're with so many other people and it's a public experience, but it's also, like, so personal. And I, like, I think there's certain shows I went to when I was a teenager, and sometimes now, maybe I'm jaded, but <laughs> just, like, the, the vibe of it, like, there's totally something in the air because everyone's brought in, like, that good and bad emotional baggage with them. But to me, that's that's the best kind of show is when... People are emotionally invested in what's happening. They're not just kind of standing there stroking their chins and analyzing it. Like, they're living it. And I think that's pretty awesome. (laughs) Okay, well, you're talking about sort of ways to rethink about the work that you're doing to make it more positive rather than feeling like you're constantly on the defensive and, like, being swamped by commentary. And maybe that ties into sort of self-care and taking care of yourself emotionally and psychologically when you're touring. Can you speak to that, to both how you try and um, be positive about the work that you're doing not, and not being defensive, as well as trying to take care of yourself emotionally, physically, psychologically? Well, I guess I think it was just important for me to set boundaries. And as much as I want what we're doing to be as genuine as possible, I think eventually I was like, I need to draw a line between real-life me and band me. So... Um, yeah, I guess for a long time I was like, I think probably because we put so much of ourselves into our music, and also lyrically it's very personal. So, you know, I want that to be the case, but then I want to be able to step back and separate when people are, you know, being negative and being hurtful and offensive. I want to have a thicker skin on that regard and just be like, I, you know, I respect what you're saying, I disagree because I don't think that's factually correct. Move on. You know, <laughs> that's like extremely generous. I disagree because I don't think that's factually correct. Well, I, the other day I wrote out, like, and I think it's just about like allowing yourself to feel the emotion, because everyone's like, oh, you, sh- you shouldn't get upset by it, and I'm like, well, no, you're human, you're a person. If someone's saying like god awful heinous things to you, it is going to affect you. But I think I've just kind of gotten better at trying to like put a pin in it and move on. I came to a conclusion a while ago. I was like, I don't. And I was not really the kind of like, person that grew up wanting to be singer in a band so that people would like adore you and like lather, slather you with attention and all that stuff. I was like, but nobody wants to be hated, do they? And I was like, nobody wants to get up every day and be like on the receiving end of like tons of hateful shit. And I was like, but you don't need to internalize it, you know? I look at that and I'm like, well, that's the perception you have of me based on what you've read about me or what you think you know. But that's you know, that's all come through a filter. It's all come through, like, a media lens. Um, I think that's an ongoing process, though, of letting go 
having everybody like you. You know, I think that it's it's easy to say. I mean, you. Le- I mean, everybody learns that growing up. Like, not everybody's gonna like you. It's okay. But Don't you can't please everybody. It, the scale of it has changed immeasurably. I guess as much as it, you know, we get a lot of positivity, and that's great. But also, you don't want that all to go into your head, and for you to think that you're the best human that's ever existed. But the scale of good and bad goes up at the same time. Mm-hmm. And also, I suppose um, I'm 28 now, but I was like 23, just about to be 24, when I met Ian, and then started playing in the band. And I feel like a lot of people grow up a huge amount during that time of their 20s, anyway. And I guess I've just done it under a microscope, being in this band. Um, and I think in my personal life and my professional life, I've just kind of figured out what lines I want to draw and what boundaries I want to set. And just finally being like, no, don't, you know, just learning not to be a pushover and also learning not to take everything take everything on your own back, if that makes sense. So I guess for me, also, like, it's important to feel like I'm putting something positive out into my tiny part of the world as well. And I think that's been a nicer way to do it rather than being like constantly like outraged by things or just feeling like, especially the kind of industry we work in, some people are like, no, she should just like toughen up. She should just get over it. But then, you know, that's happening like every day. It's like chipping, 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 chipping away at you. And there was this like a video that went viral of like me telling a heckler to shut up at a show and yeah that was a, that was a really recent show actually where some yes. guy said he was in the audience yelled marry me and yes. you like stopped and, and the video doesn't show is that that guy had been doing that the entire time he was doing that the whole show people around him must have been like could this guy fucking shut up we're trying to watch the gig so i was like okay like i'll just engage with him so to be like you're not being respectful of the gig he's not being respectful of the performance he's not being respectful of people that have come with him come on come on marry me pardon Oh, oh, come on. <laughs> Do you actually think that's good? Does that, what's the, rate, the hit rate on that? When you go to public places and ask women you don't know. <laughs> if they want to, to wed you smoothly or Does that work out well for you, sir? <laughs> and also, I don't know, like, I assume, because you're here, that you know a bit about our band. And I'm very grumpy. <laughs> I don't want that shit. <laughs> Yeah, I guess for me, I was like, yes, that's... If you were like, oh, well, people were like, she's very rude to her fans, it's very disrespectful. And I was like, well, I would argue that's not a very respectful way for you to conduct yourself. And then when people were saying, well, nobody complains when little girls are shouting, marry me, an NSYNC concert. And I was like, yes, I see what you're saying, but I'm not in a boy band. It's different, it's a different thing. And I was like, that's teenage girls dealing with hormones and growing up and all those kind of emotions. I was like... And also, we don't get through a show now where that shit doesn't happen to us. Like, the day after we played in Philadelphia and somebody threw a jockstrap on the stage with a roll of condoms stuck in the front. So, you know, when someone's like, why is she being such an uptight bitch? I'm like, maybe I am being an uptight bitch, but then you don't, you know what I mean? It's like, they don't live in my experience, they don't see it every day. And it's not like I only want to talk about those minute aspects of what I perceive to be, like, women's issues. So, but you know, you deal with the ball that you're throwing at the time. So, and I guess to me, I was like, well, we grew up playing like kind of club shows where you respond to the heckler and you shut them down. And if I was a dude front in a metal band, nobody would have a problem with it, I don't think. So, <laughs> yeah, when when you told that guy, when, when you laid out, here's why that's disrespectful, stop doing that, you're being very rude. Did that feel good to you? Or afterwards, were you like, oh, I shouldn't have said that? I was being so mean to that guy who was being a jerk. No, well, I guess I view that as like, 
you know, that's not the best or worst thing that happened to us in that day, but it's just like gig cat calling, essentially. And I was like, it's a performance, it's a band, it's not. And I guess I was like, you don't, to me, I was like, I don't think that's per- that person is a fan of our band. Like, if they're going to look at our band and break it down to, like, separate me from the others purely based on gender, then I'm like, well, that's stupid anyway. But I didn't even think that much about it after the show because I was like, it was tongue-in-cheek, it was sarcastic, but it made the point. So I didn't really think anything about it. And, like, I don't know, part of me was like, well, maybe I should not respond to hecklers anymore. And I was like, well, then that's us changing the way we conduct ourselves because of what other people think. And can't you can't do that in life, you know? You have to just do what feels right to you at the time. And I think at the time I was like... It was just frustrating because you've been doing that the whole way through the set. So I was like, right, I'll take two minutes, deal with you. Because, you know, you're singing and performing, but also you're the front man, you're the compere, you know? So I was like, okay, for the benefit of the gig, I need to fucking shut that guy up <laughs> and then proceed. But And then people were like, she's so rude to him. And I'm like, well, what was the appropriate response? <laughs> like, I don't understand. Yeah, like he was taking up undue amount of space and time and emotional energy from you. I mean, if you could hear him through the whole show disrupting your line of thought and you're the person who's singing (laughs) and the person that like is putting on the show I think you're right that it is it does feel like you said gig catcalling and I think that's really true that it's it's a form of harassment and same thing on the street you know when somebody yells at you on your on the street you have to figure out you know is it better for me to respond or is better for me to not respond and it it totally depends on the situation and how safe you feel and how angry you are that day and that's the only like, to me, that's the difference. I was like, that's one of the few times in life where a woman literally has a microphone, so I can literally tell you to shut up and there won't be any comeback on me apart from the internet afterwards. But I don't know. I was like, it doesn't actually roll out like that that much. And mainly, my response at the time was I was like, like, shut up, you dirty dude. But also, you're ruining the gig for everybody around you. Shut up. So, I don't know. I, I, don't, I wouldn't take it back. I stand by it. I will do it again. That was Lauren Mayberry of Churches. The band's second album, Every Open Eye, just came out this fall. I bought it. You should too. You've been listening to Propaganda, the Feminism and Pop Culture Podcast. Thanks so much on this episode to Latoya Peterson, Erin Carmon, and Lauren Mayberry for making time to talk with us. They are all very impressive, busy people who took time just for this show. Plus, thanks to champion article reader Serena Fong. And of course, thanks to our sponsors, Celestial Pictures. Propaganda is produced by the team here at Bitch Media. Bitch is an independent, nonprofit feminist media organization. We're entirely funded by our Beehive members, subscribers, and like-minded sponsors. So if you like today's episode of Propaganda, please become a member online at bitchmedia.org today. Let us know you liked the show in your order comments. Our jingle is by Mux and Owen Worker. Additional music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Look up their creative and minimalist sounds by going to Google and typing in sessions.blue. 
And the show is produced by Alex Ward at the studios of X-Ray FM, an independent radio station in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for listening.